If you want to win a free voucher to download Final Draft screenwriting software, all you have to do is follow Jog Road Productions and Road to Cinema on all four platforms of social media. That's right. Follow us on Twitter, at Jog Road. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Jog Road. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, and follow us on Instagram, instagram.com slash Jog Road Productions. By following us on all four platforms of social media, you'll be entered into a contest to win a free download of the Final Draft screenwriting software brought to you by Road to Cinema and our friends at Final Draft. Welcome to episode number 33 of the Road to Cinema podcast featuring Oscar-nominated director Brett Morgan of the new documentary Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, which is currently available to watch in the United States on HBO, HBO On Demand, HBO Go, and HBO Now. In the first ever fully authorized documentary about the Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain, director Brett Morgan was given unprecedented access into the archives of Kurt Cobain. The film features Kurt's personal journal entries, as well as artwork, photography, personal videos, sound collages, and never-before-heard audio interviews. Brett Morgan and his team also created original animation that corresponds with Kurt Cobain's narration of many moments in his childhood. The film also features the very first interviews with Kurt Cobain's immediate family, as well as his former wife, Courtney Love, who appears in never-before-seen home movies with Kurt Cobain, which are featured in this documentary. Brett Morgan takes us inside his detailed editing process, as well as his process for sound mixing and his original inspiration for making this truly original and one-of-a-kind documentary. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at jogroad, like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash jogroad, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jogroad Productions, and now you can also follow us on Instagram, instagram.com slash jogroadproductions. And now we join Oscar-nominated director Brett Morgan as he takes us inside his original inspiration for making this new documentary, Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck. Well, the idea with Montage of Heck was that it would be a, a movie about Kurt's interior journey through life as experienced through his art. And with Kurt Cobain, we have a rare opportunity to do a movie in that mode. Because if you think about it, how do you do a documentary about someone's interior journey through life? <laughs> Most documentaries are approaching their subjects from the outside looking in. And we were hoping to do it from the inside looking out. And the reason that was even remotely possible is a tribute to Kurt Cobain. Kurt was just not only a musician, but an artist, and an artist with a capital A. And he was an artist both orally and visually. And in each experience, in each form of expression, he was able to articulate his life experiences with the same integrity and passion that he brought to his music. And so, you know, here you got a guy who's working in sound collage and sound design and film score and composition. And then visually he's making Super 8 films and journals and doodling and painting and sculpting. And in each piece, he's leaving a part of himself. And you put it all together and you get a sort of a portrait begins to emerge of Kurt through his own experience. 
experiences. You had such unprecedented access into the archives of Kurt Cobain. Uh, so I'm wondering, in organizing that research, uh, did you form a timeline at all for putting it together for the film? I did. Um, the first thing I always do in my movies is sort of build out a chronological timeline. And that's how I, I screen the footage for the first time. Um, the reason I do this is I, I, certain themes start to emerge. And, um, and I find it to be quite uh, effective. Uh, is it like a very strategic written document uh, that you lay out? Well, once I've screened through everything, um, what I do is I, I, I shy away from doing any um, script work prior to having evaluated all the materials. But the moment I have evaluated all the materials, I retreat to my home and I spend a couple days sort of breaking, busting out the outline. And in all my films so far, the, the outline is very, very close to what the finished product is. And uh, that includes pro people you are going to interview, uh, audio know, I mean, footage? With this film, uh, I wasn't intending to interview anyone yeah. when I wrote the outline, but it, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. The title sequence for this film in my script was called American Anthem, and it was subtitled The World That Don and Jenny, I mean, sorry, Don and Wendy Bought Into and that Kurt Was Brought Into. Images of suburbia, white picket fences are juxtaposed with sci-fi movies and horror movies in a montage that would look like Kurt might have assembled it. And then potential song ideas, you know, one of which was territorial pissings. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's really incredible how that opening works out. It really sort of sets the tone for Kurt's own point of view, and that kind of carries you through the entire film. Well, we had an advantage that... Uh, no other uh, biographer had previously had, which is we had Kurt's mother, father, sisters, cooperation and participation, as well as the home movies that document Kurt's life from uh, six months old to eight years old. And when you think about it, um, Kurt's childhood plays a significant role in both his mythology as well as that of all of his, bio you know, all of the biographies. And yet, None of them had ever been done with the participation of the family and the family footage. And, um, you know, as Kurt likes to say, it's all in the meat. It's all in the meat. Yeah, it's uh, watching those home movies is uh, is really incredible. And going into sort of the the movies of uh, the home movies of Courtney and and uh, I'm sorry, of Courtney and Kurt, uh, it really gives you such a, a sense of their relationship that's sort of beyond the, the tabloid headlines that have been out in so many years. When you saw that footage initially, uh, what was your reaction, and did it sort of um, change your point of view on their relationship? The, the home movies? Yeah, of uh, Kurt and Courtney. Um, for sure. Um, I mean, I, you know, like everyone else, I had met Courtney through the media and, you know, the way she was depicted in the media. And when you see those home movies, I think for the first time we're getting a glimpse of as to how Kurt saw Courtney. I mean, literally, because he's actually shooting some of the footage. Um, and, you know, I, I think that what emerges is a... Um, um, you know, you see a couple that is, you know, has that fiery, intense, passionate love that only 
25-year-old's going to have. There's such like an intimacy to those moments. That also, too, the, the animation in the film is so vivid, and you have a history of using animation. What was your point of view into going into the animation, and did you know specifically beforehand what parts of Kurt's life you wanted to animate? Well, I knew I was going to have to animate the um, the journals and the, the his artwork. I mean, it's, it's a movie. It's not a book. So, you know, we needed to find a filmic language that would allow those to um, to live on the silver screen, so to speak. The, but what I didn't intend to do and never anticipated doing was having to actually animate Kurt. You know, it was something I really didn't want to do. Um, and um, But I had all this amazing audio and I had tried a bunch of other ways around it. I was trying to avoid animation and, you know, all roads led back to animation. So I, I put together a team of um, you know two wonderful animators, one who did all the journals and Kurt's artwork, and the other one who did the representations of Kurt. Um, that gentleman was named Hisko Hulsing, and he did everything by hand. So we did 6,000 drawings, um, 58 oil paintings, you know, that are all measure about four by six foot. So this is like old-school Disney animation. All completely uh, hand-drawn, so no yeah. CGI in there at all. Yeah, there were two shots that we needed to do um, 3D, but that was it. Yeah, no, it has such a texture to it, which you really don't get out of animation anymore. Yeah. Uh, also, too, the, you know, the sound design. Uh, I've heard you talk in other interviews how important sound was for this film. Uh, were you very specific uh, as far as every single moment in the film of songs, of audio, how you really wanted it to come across? Yeah. I mean, in terms of songs, absolutely. The songs were pre-selected before we started cutting the picture based upon the narrative and the emotional value of the music and the lyrics. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, look, I collaborate. So, um, you know, I, I, I invite everyone else to participate and bring us up to the table. And I will say that um, Joe Beshenkovsky, I mean, I, I, had some, I, I, had, I had some great people working with me. Um, a lot of the sound design, most of the sound design was done in our office before it got to the um, sound design team, you know, because it was part of the narrative. Unlike a normal film where you have, you know, you basically have, you know, actors doing their thing and you have to send it off the sound design to put in effects. Our, our sound design, aren't, they're not effects. They're the, they're the storytelling device that we use to, to, to bring Kurt's story to life. So all that stuff was sort of shaped and sculpted and built in our facility before it uh, left here. Yeah. Uh, as far as editing as a whole for you, um, you know, you, you work on documentaries for, you know, such a long time, uh, just sort of the nature of them. How do you know when you're, when you're finished? Is there a great way question. to really know? That's a great question. You know when you're finished, when you've been screening it four times a day and you've run out of problems and you don't see any more problems. And let me tell you something, that is a rare situation. Um, because, you know, the, the offline is essentially nothing more than, a, than an audition. So, uh, you know, before you go to the stage, you have to get the, the offline to be absolutely fucking perfect unto itself. And, you know, it seems like it's, it's like almost like an um, existential task in that, you know, you go through a cut of the film, you write your eight notes, you go back, you fix those eight notes, you screen the film again to make sure that it's working and suddenly there's eight more notes that have nothing to do with the original eight notes. And then you fix those eight notes, you screen it back to make sure those eight notes are addressed, and now there's 16 new notes. 
And what that is is every time you're seeing it, you're finding you're exposing something new. And you keep doing it over and over. I mean, I'm one of these guys, if I make a cut in real six, I'm going to watch the film from the beginning to make sure it's working. So at a certain point, I'm watching the film two to three times a day, and, but it's fine because I'm completely locked in at that point. And once you've sort of have got through the, arrived at this point where you don't see any obvious problems in the offline, then you go to the stage. The problem with sound is usually that people spend all their money before they get there. And so then you have to like, you know, you, you spend all this time, in this case, eight years working on a film, and you know, by all means, you gotta make sure that you're prepared to get to that mixing stage because if not, once again, everything up to now has been an audition. This is the final performance. So we got in a situation with sound on our film where we had blown through our sound budget and we had a hefty sound budget and we were mixing on, uh, I think it was stage nine or 10 of Warner Brothers, which is where Chris Nolan mixes. I mean, massive stage. And I got a call from the Bond company saying that, um, that that was it, man, that, you know, we didn't have any more contingency, that I'd gone through my allotment. And I, you know, I very gracefully called them and said, listen, I understand the predicament you're in. What we're going to do is I'm going to sign a waiver so that you guys are completely off the hook. And I'm going to send my assistant over with a check covering all overages. And, you, you know, you guys are done. Yeah, I mean that's uh, an incredible, incredibly brave of you to do. But you know, you had that confidence, uh, knowing that you knew that you could, uh, you could accomplish it. It wasn't easy. I mean, I kept going back after festivals to remix and remix and remix and remix, and finally, you know, this weekend I saw it exactly the way it should be seen at the art, at the uh, in the Cinerama Dome, and um, you know, it was kind of liberating. Is it difficult as well because, uh, you know, every theater has a different sound system, yes. has a different projection system? Yes, it's brutal. Is it really possible to go in and sort of, you know, tailor it to your yes. liking? Yeah. Yes. I mean, like, there's some theaters that, let's say, don't have surrounds, okay? Like, you know, now that's just ridiculous. You know, like, uh, film festivals run into that. There's nothing you can really do there. Um, I set the levels at every theater. Um, I take everything into account, you know, how, how big the room is, uh, how many people are going to be in there. Um, and I can usually sesh out a room pretty well to know um, if it's playing within point. I would say uh, I can guess it within point two, um, meaning if I set it at 7.3 and I go in the room, I can tell if someone has dropped it to 7.1 pretty easily. Um, uh, you know, when it's off, I can't watch the movie. And I just assume nobody else can. So I'm constantly sort of getting into it with projectionists. <laughs> you know, I, I got in this terrible fight in Berlin with this projectionist who said, um, she had done this to me, she, you know, I set the level with her, I go back to my seat, and I knew it wasn't, she had must have tweaked it after I left. I went back, I saw what she did, I called her out on it, and she said, well, I need to protect my audience. And I was like, what do you mean your audience? I guess they didn't pay to see your movie. They paid to see my movie, and you don't know what my movie's supposed to sound like. <laughs> and I said, they're my audience. What are you talking about? They paid to see my movie, and I need to give them the movie experience that they're paid for. You know, so it's, it's you know, when you find a, a good egg in that world, I mean, like, you got to be, you know, projectionists are, they, they control the keys. But I'm very frustrated by the fact that there is not a more universal sort of, I'm, I'm frustrated that the Academy does not enforce 
a more universal sound code. The reason you can't really do that is 7.0 plays differently in a small room than it does in a very large room. Yeah, and also the acoustics of every room must be a little bit different. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, for you, you know, going through the editing process of this film uh, after such a long time, was there anything that kind of surprised you about uh, Kurt Cobain as well as in the research process? Anything that you really, you know, that really took you off guard that you hadn't been aware of? Um, you know, everything was a revelation. Every, everything was a revelation. You know, there wasn't a day that I wasn't discovering something new, and it was adding to my whole experience with the movie. Yeah. Uh, and then, just the, the lastly, uh, I just wanted to ask you if um, you have any advice about uh, editing itself, because, you know, you're so involved with editing on every film that you do, and every film that you do is so editorial de- editorially dependent. Uh, is there any piece of advice that you could pass along about uh, the editing process? Well, I, I listen, this is the advice I would give to anyone who's pursuing a career in directing. Either you want to work with, surround yourselves by the, the smartest, most talented people you can, you know, people who are much more intelligent than you and gifted than you, but never be intimidated by that because it is your film and only you know what the film should feel like and sound like. So you have to be willing to get in there and mix it up. And, um, you know, to me, editing, you know, I I can't give an overall general piece of advice because it's so specific to whatever type of film you're making. But I'm into texture. And I'm into, I'm into, like, when I'm talking about sound with the mixers on the sound stage, I'm often referring to... I'm, I'll say things like I'm not feeling I, 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 want, I don't want to hear it I want to feel it and so I do a lot of work in the subs and I do a lot of work in the surrounds by splitting up the sounds because it's, by the, it's only then that I get separation um, which is why the Cinerama Dome is my favorite theater to screen in in the world because the way it's shaped you get this really clear separation in different tracks as opposed to being in a small room where everything gets muddied up um, I think editorially, I've been blessed to work with some amazing editors, and I've learned a lot from them. And, you know, I'm very into texture and uh, into an economy of use and into pure and montage. You know, I, 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 the, the thing I, that I, I can't stand, I, I can't stand w- wasted opportunities. You know, I, I, if I see a film and someone, a documentary, and it cuts to someone driving a car, but they're not going anywhere, it's just for B-roll, I'm walking out of the theater because I'm dealing with, uh, with a missed opportunity, someone who's not guiding me on a journey. They just don't know what to show me. And if they don't know what to show me, I don't want to watch their movie. Yeah. No, I feel like uh, you know, every moment uh, in all of your films is so specific. Uh, you know, I, I just really want to compliment you on the film you did for ESPN, uh, June 17th, 1994, which you know, really, you, know, you had so much footage to go through. You had no interviews, and it was just all, you know, archival footage and an original music score. And it's, like, one of the most suspenseful films I've ever seen. So, you know, bravo. Oh, thanks, really man. Incredible. I really appreciate it. Well, you know, the, 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 one, of the, one of the challenges of that film, when we started it, I said to the, um, I said to the, uh, um, uh, what was it, to the editor that the goal here is to allow the audience to, to invite the audience to suspend their understanding of what happens after this day. We all know how, what the outcome is, but I want to get them to a point where they actually think O.J. is going to kill himself. 
And if we can get close to that, if we can get 20% there, we've totally succeeded. And I, I know that when I see the film, I, I kind of jump in my seat in various points when the camera's cutting away because I'm like hanging on to find out what's going to happen to OJ. Yeah. No, I mean, you know the ending, but yet it still feels like, you know, something different could happen. Exactly. Which gives you that sense. 